Chronologically, 2 Samuel actually ends with chapter 20. David's rebellious boy, you know him, Absalom, is dead. His coup d'etat has been thwarted. David now is back on the throne. And there is more to come in the story of David, his succession and his death. But that's subject matter for 1 Kings. The last four chapters of 2 Samuel form an appendix to the book that provides a few flashbacks that sort of fill in the former record. 2 Samuel 21 begins, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. David recognizes that sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes physical disasters, calamities, do have spiritual causes. We can't jump to that conclusion every time something bad happens, but it does occur. There is that correlation from time to time. And David senses that this is the case at this moment. And so he asks God about the famine. Lord, what's the cause? And he's told by God that it's the result of Saul's injustice to the Gibeonites. Here's what had happened. When Joshua led Israel into Canaan, he made a covenant with this tribe of Gibeon, the Gibeonites. Saul, though, had ignored Joshua's covenant and had tried to wipe them out. You see, God takes promises seriously. And because Saul didn't, Israel was suffering a three-year famine. It was David's duty to rectify Saul's greedy mistake. Here are four lessons to be learned from this story. You might jot these down. First of all, God takes promises seriously. He expects us to keep our promises, especially the ones we made to our spouse. Second, God isn't just serious about individual promises. He cares about promises that have been made by nations. This is the case here with Israel. Third, time does not diminish a person's obligation to keep his or her promise. There is no statute of limitations on a promise made. And then fourth, God's correction may come at a time long after the original infraction. Don't think you've gotten away with not keeping your promise. God may come back and remind you. Well, the story continues. So the king called the Gibeonites and he spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and with what shall I make atonement, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? In other words, we've mistreated you. How can I make this thing right? We want to eat. We're tired of the famine. And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, Let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul. 
whom the Lord chose. Now this phrase, to hang them before the Lord, implies that this hanging was with the Lord's approval. This was no arbitrary execution. The king says, I will give them. And evidently David picked out seven men that were deserving of the punishment. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. You remember, David had made a promise to be kind to Jonathan's offspring. And so the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, and this is another Mephibosheth, just like there are probably a couple of Michaels here tonight in ancient Israel. They were going to any group and there'd be a couple of Mephibosheths. So he took the Mephibosheth and the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul. These five sons were sired by Michael's first husband, but would have been David's stepchildren. Okay. Whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzalel, the Maholothite, And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. Boy, David gave over his stepsons to be hung. His five stepsons. (laughs) Must have had a hard time with the blended family. (laughs) You really hope David didn't have something in turning his stepsons over to uh, the Gibeonites, but David did do some things like that. And so they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest, or in the spring of the year. Verse 10, Now Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on the rock. From the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. Now the coming of the late rains indicated that the famine was over. Retribution had been made. Justice had been served. Now, good weather, rain, and crops, and fruitfulness was restored in the land of Israel. Rispa, the mother of the two who had been executed, held a vigil. And it had to have lasted for at least several weeks from the time all this happened to the time that the rains came. During that time, her sons, the body of her sons, remained unburied and exposed. And of course, this brought further shame on Israel. This was the Gibeonites' way to show that the crimes committed against them by Saul had finally been vindicated. And for the whole time, these bodies lay out in the elements exposed. Rizpah did not allow the birds of the air, the vultures, to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done. He admired her vigilance. It was a show of respect towards Saul's dynasty. Hey, Saul had been chosen by God to be king. Certainly, he and his family need to be given some dignity, even in the face of their disaster and their sin. And David started thinking in his mind, okay, Rizpah is out here honoring the two descendants of Saul by shooing off the vultures and showing some respect to these corpses Certainly, I should be showing some respect to Saul and to his lineage. David starts thinking. Saul was king. Saul was God's anointed. Certainly, he deserves some respect. 
Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gilboa. Here the men of Jabesh-Gilead, they rescued Saul's body. You remember the Philistines had chopped off his head and they had nailed his body up on the gates there in Bethshan. Well, the men of Jabesh-Gilead had gone and rescued his body and they had taken and they had stolen away the bones. Here David takes Saul and Jonathan's bones. They had never been given a decent burial. Their bodies were cremated, but their bones had been dumped under a tree at Jabesh. David digs them up, and he takes them to a family burial site in Benjamin, where Saul is to be given the honor and the dignity that he deserves as a former king. And so he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamite in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father, so they performed all that the king commanded. Saul was chosen by God, and David was very careful to give him the appropriate honor. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. Notice this. God blessed David and Israel for tying up some loose ends, for going back and making some injustices right and keeping some promises. Let me ask you a question. Do you think you're missing out on a blessing or two tonight because you've allowed some loose ends to dangle in your life? Are there some issues in your life that you've yet to tie up and perhaps are causing some calamity in your life? Maybe there's some promises that you made but never kept. Do you need to tie up some loose ends tonight? Hey, if God brings it to mind, take care of it tonight. Verse 15, when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. He got dizzy. It happens to all of us at times. His blood sugar got low. There were no Coca-Colas nearby. You just hope it doesn't happen to you in battle. David got lightheaded, and he was about to collapse, and he had a giant on his heels. Then Ishbi Benob, who was, and what mother would call her son Ishbi Benob? Shame on her. Then Ishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels. This Ishbi Benob, this was a strong dude. His spearhead weighed nine pounds, who was bearing a new sword. He thought he could kill David, and he's certainly about to pounce on him at the right moment. David's dizzy. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Abishai had David's back. Wasn't he glad? Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Let me say to you that David is not the last spiritual leader who has become dizzy and weak. Everyone has his moments. That's why we all need a friend watching our back. Do you have a friend? When you come up against an Ishbi Binab, 
and you're dizzy and about to fall over, do you have a friend who will watch your back? We all need one. Well, after this near miss, David's men insisted that he no longer go to battle. As they put it, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Let's not lose our leader, they said. And this insistence could have been what kept David home in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You remember, that's what set him up with his affair with Bathsheba. The irony was that David was far safer in the will of God fighting giants than he was outside the will of God at home idol. Don't forget that. It's been said our greatest enemy is not the giant that comes against us, but the sin that's lurking within us. Ishbibinab was nothing compared to a giant named Bathsheba. These verses that we're reading mention clashes, several clashes, between David and his men, and they go into combat with giants. That's interesting. Giants. Philistine freaks, we could call them. The Hebrew word translated giant is actually the word rephaim, and it's used in Genesis 6 for the mutant beings that existed before the flood. When the sons of God, or the fallen angels, crossed appropriate boundaries and engaged sexually with the daughters of men, it produced a race of humanoids. This strange kind of supernatural, polluted kind of human being. And this is why God called a flood. This is why it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. This is why God wiped out the entire world before the flood. It wasn't just that somebody had opened up a strip joint or the love shack or something like that. I mean, God doesn't like that kind of stuff, but it wasn't just that kind of stuff that upset God. Something serious was going on. The entire human race was at risk. The demons had crossed over boundaries and were polluting the human race. That's why God wiped out all of man except for the family of Noah and started over. This appeared again, this phenomenon appeared again in Canaan, steeped. The Canaanites were steeped in the occult and in Satanism and demonism. And it existed in Canaan when Joshua crossed over the Jordan with the Israelites. And again, this is why God told the Hebrews to take no prisoners, to show no mercy, to wipe out the men, the women, and the children. For God wanted to use the Israelites to eradicate this demonic pollution that had occurred in the human race. And the last place these giants show up was in Philistine country. Well, verse 18 tells us, Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Gob is another name for Gezer. It was a town on the border with the Philistines. Then Sibekai the Hushahite killed Zoph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines where Elhanah, the son of Jair Oregum, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Notice, Goliath had a brother. Evidently, all four of these giants in verses 15 to 22 were related to Goliath of Gath, David's foe in the Valley of Elah. And yet again, there was a war at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. 
24 digits in all. And he also was born to the giant. Here's a guy who had a hard time shopping for gloves. Can you imagine walking into Payless shoes with this kind of a problem? So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. Evidently, his extra fingers and extra toes didn't help him against Jonathan. Verse 22. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. 1 Samuel 17 recounts the famous story of David's battle with Goliath in the valley of Elah. You probably remember when David went down to the brook, he picked out five smooth stones. Remember the story? And of course, the question always comes up, why five stones? Certainly, he only needed one to bring down Goliath. But here's what we learn. Here's why he chose five stones. It's because Goliath had four brothers. He got one stone for each of these giants. David loaded his pouch with enough ammo for the whole family. Which brings up those five smooth stones. Found a poem recently by Samuel Carter. I love it. Maybe you'll like it. Here's how it goes. Five little pebbles lay in a brook. Five little pebbles hid in a nook. What are we good for? One said to another. Little or nothing, my brother. Wearing away day after day, it seemed that forever these pebbles must stay. If they were flowers ever so gay, surely someone would take them away. Or if they were big stones that builders could use, some builder those stones would choose. Wait, little pebbles, rounded and clean. Long in your loneliness lying unseen. God has a future waiting for you, five little pebbles, sturdy and true. Five little pebbles hid in a brook. David came down and gave them a look. Picked them up carefully out of the sand. Five little pebbles lay in his hand. Hark, there is fighting today, and boldly these pebbles are born to the fray. One stone chosen, put in a sling. Would we have thought it could take wings? Onward it sped, with a might not its own. Onward it sped, by a shepherd boy thrown, swift as an arrow, straight as a dart, For the whole nation that stone did its part, striking the giant's great terrible head, laying him low, a mighty man dead. Five little pebbles found in a brook, mentioned with honor in God's holy book. You be a pebble, contented and low, ever kept clean by his spirit's pure flow, hidden and ready till Jesus shall look and choose you and use you. A stone from the brook. Are you willing to be a little pebble in the hand of our David, Jesus Christ? If God can use a pebble to win a victory, he can use you and me. And let me make one more point about all these giant fighters here in chapter 21. You remember when Goliath came out earlier in their history in the days of Saul and taunted the armies of God? There was no man in Israel willing or brave enough or who had faith enough to take on Goliath. Everyone was afraid until that little shepherd boy with a heart of faith showed his fellow Israelis how it could be done. David's example of faith lit a fire in the men of Israel. And isn't it interesting that now we find a chapter full of giant fighters. Besides David, there's now Abishai and Sebekai and 
Elhanna and Jonathan. These were also giant fighters, giant killers. You know, it's been said, courage is contagious. And indeed it is. So is faith. Faith too is contagious. Hey, when you do a great deed for God, when you step out in faith, who knows the other people that you're inspiring by your actions? Not all the Psalms in Scripture are found in the book of Psalms. In fact, chapter 22 is a song of David similar to Psalm 18, with just a few minor variations. It was written during David's fugitive years in response to the many times that God had delivered him from his enemies. The chapter begins, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said... The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You saved me from violence. I will call upon the Lord, notice this, who is worthy to be praised. So I shall be saved from my enemies. Understand, there are many reasons given to us to praise the Lord. For one, God promises to inhabit our praises. Hey, the Holy Spirit reveals Himself to us when we worship God. That's a good reason to praise the Lord. Another reason, worship and warfare. They go together. Warfare is a part of our worship. When we praise the Lord, it's like fingernails going down a chalkboard in the ears of Satan. When you begin to praise the Lord, the devil covers up his old little pointed ears and starts running off. Worship drives the devil nuts. Peace and joy come to us when we worship God. That's another reason to worship Him. Praise of God builds up our faith. You see, in numerous ways, worship benefits and blesses the worshiper. But guys, the true motive of praise is given to us right here. God needs to be praised because He is worthy. To be praised. Not because of what his praise will offer us. We need to praise him because his character demands it. Because his conduct attracts it. God deserves to be praised. That's why we should praise him. And you know, if we should praise God because he deserves it, that means we should do it when we feel like it or not. Just because you don't feel like it doesn't mean God's not worthy of it. We need to give him the praise he deserves. Verse 5. When the waves of death surround me, David says, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of shields surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out. And the word cried out could be translated shrieked to my God. Have you ever shrieked to God? Just cried out with all your heart to the Lord. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. You know, let me make a statement. Why is it we've got this notion that we have to come to God with all these formal statements and formal terms and flowery accolades and so forth? Where do we ever get this idea? You know, that we have to come to God in King James English. And we really have to know the right way to address God in, in this and that and so forth. That's how the Pharisees pray. That's what Jesus said. That's how the Pharisees pray. When you look at the prayers of the Bible, I mean, people are just shrieking. And they're crying out. 
And they're wailing before God and they're not really measuring their words or thinking ahead of time. They're just pouring their heart out to God. That's how we should pray. Well, then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. Don't ever say God doesn't get angry. Verses 10 and 11, David tells us, He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. Guys, don't be afraid of the storm. For according to this psalm, God rides on the storm. When the storms of life darken the sky, know that God is doing a work in your life. Don't fear the storm. Recognize what the psalmist says. God rides upon the wings of the wind. God rides on the storm. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies from the brightness before his coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Have you ever felt like that you were about to drown, that the storm had just wailed in and was just engulfing your life and you thought you were just going to be blown away in this huge storm. Oh my. David felt the same way. He felt that way in the face of his enemies. He was hated. He was rejected. And yet the Lord stepped in and the Lord delivered him. The Lord was really at work in all of his trials and all of his difficulties to form in David the man God intended him to be. And that's the purpose of the storms in our life. God delivers His people. And He says, He also brought me out into a broad place. You see, for years, David had walked those little narrow ledges in the wilderness. Those little ledges that left very little room for error. Here's in Gedi, and this is where David spent a lot of his time in flight from Saul. And you can imagine David in his sandals, you know, walking around some of those ledges. You know, very tricky places to step. Loose rock everywhere. David spent all that time on those narrow ledges. And he says, hey, God finally brought me into a safe place. He finally brought me into a broad place. There's a broad place for you. God's going to bring you into a broad place. Right now you feel like everything's tricky and you don't know where to go. And everything's so loose and unsteady in your life and shaky around you. But God's going to bring you into a broad place. Where you can relax, where you can rest. He delivered me. Because he delighted in me. Well, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. Now understand, David is not saying that he deserves God's blessing. That he's right with God by the cleanness of his hands. He's not talking about righteousness with God here. He's talking about righteousness with his fellow man. Basically, David is saying, hey, I have treated people God's way. And therefore, God is going to treat me mercifully, justly. This was evidence of how David treated God's anointed King Saul. 
Even when Saul wasn't very respectable, David nevertheless respected Saul because he had treated people in a good and godly way. He was assured that God would treat him in a similar manner. He says, For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness in his hands. You treat people the right way. God will see to it you're well taken care of. God responded to David's integrity and David's faith in his dealings with other people. And we see that. David honored Saul as king, and God one day raised David up as king. Well, in verse 28, David makes note of God's dealings in human relationships. That's the context here. He says, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you shall show yourself blameless. With the pure, you shall show yourself pure. And with the devious, you shall show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. Should be a sobering thought. That God is going to treat us the way we treat each other. If you want mercy, you need to show some mercy. I was on my way up here yesterday to serve at the ladies' tea. I was coming up to serve God. And I was in a hurry because I was running late to serve God. And there was a lady in front of me. She was poking, man. Just poking. And I couldn't understand it as these Saturday afternoon drivers. Don't they realize people have things to do? I've got to serve God. I'm headed to the ladies' tea. They need me there. Why are you poking, lady? And I was thinking all kinds of thoughts about that lady until she put her blinker on and made a left-hand turn right into Calvary Chapel uh, (laughs) parking lot. Was it you? I am so sorry. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Did you see me behind you? Oh, my, my. But you know you were poking. <laughs> hey, hey. She pulled into the parking lot and I felt like such a heel. I got to tell you. The condemnation was evident. I, I did. You, you know what I did? You know what I did? I'm going to tell you what I did. You pulled into this parking lot right here. And I was so embarrassed. I drove on down. I pulled into this parking lot over here. Because I was hoping you wouldn't recognize me. I'm telling you, you're busted, busted. Your sins will find you out, I'm telling you. And, and I'm so, will you accept my apology? Okay. You're here, you're here. <laughs> We're back. <laughs> oh my, oh my. Well, There's great evidence right there. (laughs) Be careful how you treat other people. God's going to treat you the same way. I'll tell you another time that happened to me one time. I was at the gas station, and and something happened here at the church, and somebody somebody had done something 
mistreated us in some way. I, I don't remember what it was. But I was so angry, and I was so angry at what this person had done. And I was up at the BP up there pumping gas, and, and I was listening to the radio. And all of a sudden, I hear this guy come on the radio, and he says, Be merciful, for your heavenly Father is merciful to you. And it was me. <laughs> it was me on the radio. And I'm thinking, I can't, I can't even get away from me. I love verses 29 and 30. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. Yes, he shall. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. What a wonderful passage. God strengthens us with a supernatural sprint, with a spiritual spring. When you have a need for speed, remember that with God you can run against a troop. When you need to pick me up, remember that with God you can leap over a wall. With God you have strength that's not your own. Verse 31. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. Hey, if you're tired of opinion and guesswork in this world, I hope you'll pick up your Bible. You'll find a proven path, won't you? He is a shield to all who trust in Him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and my power. And I'm sorry, I, just, I can't believe you're here tonight. <laughs> God is my strength and my power and he makes my way I'm afraid of what I'm going to read next this is all written for me tonight he makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places in other words he stabilizes me with God, you can walk a fine line. He enables you to navigate tricky places without slipping, without stumbling. He steadies your gait like a deer up on the mountain ledges, you know, walking around in all the soft soil and the loose rock. You know, God enables us to navigate those tricky paths through His Spirit. Notice this. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Notice God is no pacifist. There are times when it's his will to make war. And look at verse 36. David tells the Lord, You have also given me the shield of salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. Notice David mentions God's gentleness. You'll never see a bullwhip in God's hands. Never. He doesn't drive. Rather, God draws. He draws us. He doesn't drive us. Reminds me of an Israeli tour guide who told his group that you'll never spot a shepherd driving his flock. He always leads his flock. Later, the bus passed a man with a stick who was beating his sheep, who was driving them. And a passenger, he asked the tour guide, he said, Hey, you must be mistaken. Here's a man driving his sheep. And that's when the guy said, Yes, but that man is a butcher, not a shepherd. God is gentle with us. He's tender. He nurtures us. He lovingly leads us. It's the enemy that's the butcher. Well, verse 37 is also an intriguing passage. You enlarge my path under me so my feet did not slip. In other words, God cuts us some slack. I like that. 
Did you know God cuts us some slack? You think God is up there in heaven, this this cruel, tyrannical, making sure you dot every I and cross every T. And sometimes we think God's that way. But here, God enlarges my path under me, he says, so that my feet do not slip. God cuts me some slack. Rather than expect perfection from me, he allows me a margin for error. Rather than expect me to toe the line, God is kind enough to enlarge my path under me. Rather than expect me to walk down that little, he just enlarges the path. He knows my frailties. He knows that I'm going to slip, but he doesn't want my slips to turn into falls. So he enlarges my path. You know, guys, God wants us to succeed. He wants us to walk in a godly way. And he does everything that he can to help us. He enlarges our path. David says, I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. And I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets, and I spread them out. You have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. In other words, God has established David not only as king of Israel, but now as a world leader. Foreign nations have submitted to his rule. The foreigners are obeying his commands. Truly, during the days of David, Israel became a global empire. Its greatest extent was under David and Solomon. He says, the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. You know, there was a day when No one thought David would ever ascend to the throne. He was a fugitive. He was on the run. He was being treated by Saul like a a rat to be stomped out. But oh, how God turned the tables, how God avenged David. Because he treated Saul in a godly way, David was honored by God and was exalted to a noble place. Remember that when you think about how you treat your boss. Or how you treat the cop who pulls you over. Or how you treat the irate pastor who gets behind you and starts <laughs> honking your horn. Be kind to those people. Even, even when they don't deserve it. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. And that last line of the psalm is a reference to 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Davidic covenant. You remember God promised David an heir who would reign forever over Israel and establish an eternal kingdom. And of course, the Christmas story, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, identifies David's heir as who? As Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of those genealogies in the front of the New Testament. Well, 2 Samuel 23 begins with David's farewell speech. 
Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Notice the four ways that David identifies himself. First of all, by lineage. He's the son of Jesse. Second, by legacy. He is a man that God has exalted. Third, by loyalty. He is a leader anointed by God. And fourth, by love. For David's passion was what? It was worship. He was a psalmist at heart. David's name is attached to 73 different psalms. He composed almost half the Hebrew hymnal. He says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over me must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. In other words, a ruler's vision, his direction, his judgment should be clear. It can't be hazy, can't be foggy. Verse 5, Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. Now in verses 8 through 39, David lists his 37 mighty men. And apparently they're listed in the order of prominence. The first three men listed are at the head of the class. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, the Tachmonite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite. Adino means luxuriousness. Esnite means the stiff bat. Perhaps this man fought upright and he fought with flair. Kind of a luxurious style. Whatever he did, he killed 800 men at one time. It worked. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, which is what they call my boys. <laughs> Especially after this weekend. But this Eleazar was anything but a Dodo. Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahoite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. Eleazar was so tenacious in the battle that his hand froze to the grip of his sword. He couldn't pry his fingers off the handle of his sword. He was that tenacious. We need to remember that our chief weapon in the spiritual battle against Satan, against sin, against this world, is the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. And guys, we need to have a handle on God's Word. We need to hold on to God's Word as tightly as we can. As a matter of fact, we need a vice grip. We need to hold so tightly to God's Word that our fingers freeze around it, that we can't let it go. We can't put it down. 
It's our constant companion and our source and our strength. Hey, learn the word of God. A vice grip is needed for victory. Well, after Adino and Eleazar was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herahite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. Then the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. Shammah, he liked his lentils. He wasn't about to give them up. And the Lord brought about a great victory. When everyone else ran from the Philistines, Shammah, notice this, stationed himself in the middle of the field and defended it. Shammah is the only soccer player mentioned in the Bible. He defended the midfield. Get that, Nick? He defended the midfield. Threw that in there just for you. Hope you laugh because nobody else did. It was a rough night. A lovely story of devotion is told in these next few verses. Then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim, or the valley of the giants. Now David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David just said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of that water. Oh, that sweet tasting water from that well back home down in Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Something about that water. Just tasted so sweet, so good. Oh, if I just had a drink of that water. You know, David is a fugitive. He's held up in the cave of Abdullam. He's reminiscing about better times, about the home life he once enjoyed. And he remembers this sweet tasting water drawn from the well of Bethlehem. At the time, though, Bethlehem was occupied by Philistines, <laughs> off limits to Hebrews, behind enemy lines. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. What a statement of love and loyalty to their leader. Adino and Eleazar and Shammah, they go to Bethlehem. They bravely slip behind enemy lines. They risk their neck to fill up a canteen of water with this sweet sipping water well, you know. They do it all just because they love their leader, just for David. When they return with the water he's been craving, David is stunned. I mean, he can't believe such a lavish display of devotion and dedication would be shown him. And he senses, I'm not worthy to gulp down one drink of this water that was won by such sacrifice. He says, nevertheless, he would not drink it but poured it out before the Lord. David poured out this water as a libation or as a liquid offering to God, a liquid sacrifice. Only the Lord deserved that kind of unflinching loyalty and sacrificial love. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. And I love this story because it proves an important point that real love is lavish. Real love goes to great extremes and extravagance to reveal itself. When you 
first fell in love with your spouse, you remember all the little silly things you did? I mean, you couldn't afford rent, but you went out and mortgaged the the house and got roses, you know. You couldn't afford the roses you gave to her, but you did it anyway. I mean, you'd be taking a shower in the steam and fall, and you'd start writing his initials in the steam on the shower door and all. Silly, stupid things. Why is that? It's because love goes to extremes. Love is always extravagant. And let me ask you a question. When was the last time you did a crazy thing for God? When was the last time you just did a bold, crazy thing, just took a radical step out in faith just to show God that you loved Him? Real love is always extravagant. If you really love God, let me tell you what to do. Give an offering you can't afford. Spend an hour accomplishing nothing but just praising the Lord. Take a risk to share your faith. Go out of your way to help a person who never, ever will be able to pay you back. Real love, you see, goes to extremes. I was challenged by my wife tonight to be more bolder. I've been challenged by everybody tonight. (laughs) This Bible study's been for me. Real love goes to extremes. Verse 17 closes, These things were done by the three mighty men. Verse 18 starts another group. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He killed two brave men, lion-like. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. Benaiah, what a brave man. What a valiant fighter. I guess you could say Benaiah annihilated the Egyptian. Annihilated the Egyptian. You get that? Annihilated the Egyptian. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did and won a name among three mighty men. He was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. He became the king's chief bodyguard. Azahil, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanah, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, another Dodo, this one lived in Bethlehem. Shammah, the Herodite. Elikah, the Herodite. Helez, the Paltite, Ira, the son of Ikish, the Tekoite, Abiezer, the son of Anathrothite, Mebunai, the Hushahite, Zalman, the Ahohite, Mahari, <laughs> oh my, <laughs> the Netophithite, Heleb, the son of Bana, the Netophithite, Ittai, the son of Ribiai from Gibeah of the children of Benjamin. And I'm really taking a risk reading this chapter. If I mispronounce one of these names 
and I anger the owner, I could be in big trouble when I get to heaven because these are not the type of fellows you want to upset. If you get to heaven and you see me over in the corner getting beat up by a couple of guys, I want you to grab David and tell him to get his mighty men off of me. Benaiah, a Parathonite, Hittite from the brooks of Gosh, Abba Alban, the Arbathite, Osmaveth, and Eliabah, and Jonathan, and Shammah, and Ahiam, and Eliphelet, and Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, the son of Ahithophel. Remember Ahithophel? Ahithophel was Absalom's chief counselor, but his son was one of David's mighty men. Hezra, the Carmelite, Para, Egal, Bani, Zelig, Nahari, Ira, the Irathite, Garib, the Irathite, and notice the final name in verse 39, Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. Does that last name ring a bell? One of David's mighty men. Chapter 24 records another of David's sins. Verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Ancient kings like pastors today like to use the size of their congregation as a reason to boast. And that's why David orders the census. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking a census. There's nothing wrong with counting your congregation per se. As a matter of fact, in Numbers chapter 1 and in chapter 24, Moses counted the people of Israel. In the New Testament, we know that 3,000 people were saved at Pentecost. Someone had to count them. Counting in and of itself is not evil. But what made this census wrong was David's haughty attitude behind it. You see, counting implies ownership. You don't count my stuff. You count my stuff, I get mad. You know, you start counting my stuff, that's wrong. You count your own stuff. I count my own stuff. Counting implies ownership. And it should always done, be done cautiously, and it should only be done for a legitimate purpose. Now, the nation Israel didn't belong to David belonged to God, but David acted like it belonged to him. And so the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, in other words, north to south, and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing. Joab, he knows David's going off on the wrong path. He's wondering what practical reason is there, David, for this census? You're only trying to inflate your ego. And Joab must have sensed that David's motivation was wrong. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel, and they're gone for 10 months. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Aurora on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hadshi, 
and they came to Dan, Yon, and around to Sidon, and they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And then they went out to the south, to Judah, as far as Beersheba. And so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Verse 9. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. The number of men that Moses counted when he led Israel out of Egypt was 603,550 men. Now, 600 years later, the number has more than doubled to 1.3 million people. And you add women and children to that number, there were probably about 4 million Hebrews at the time. Verse 10, And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. He knew in his heart his motive had been wrong. It wasn't for a practical reason that he wanted to know the people. He wanted to know the number of the people so that he could brag about it, be proud of it. David knows he's wrong and he asked for God's forgiveness. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. God forgives David, but he still needs to be disciplined for his foolishness. And God takes an unprecedented step. He lets David pick out his own punishment. David gets to pick his own poison. And it's a multiple choice. God gives him three options. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And I'm sure David thought, famine? Oh my, we've already done, we've been there, done that for three years. On the run from my enemies? Whoa, been there, done that too for 15 years. Had enough of that. Three days of plague, well, I guess that's the only option I haven't tried. When I was in high school, I got sent to the principal for fighting. I know that shocks you. (laughs) And he gave me three choices. 100 laps around the baseball field, a three-day suspension, or three licks with the boat oar he kept above his desk. I took David's approach. I took the three licks. The idea was to get the punishment over as quickly as possible. And that's why David takes the three days. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great. And do not let me fall into the hand of man. David is sure of one truth. God is far more merciful than wicked men. And so the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. A heavy price to pay for a prideful, haughty spirit. Boy, humility is a virtue we all should want to cultivate. 
And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. Thankfully, it was over. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arayunah, the Jebusite. And then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And he said what you and I have said countless times ourselves. Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. And notice, God never answers David's question. And get used to it. Because I've often asked the same question. God, why does the innocent person suffer? Why does he suffer? He's such a good man. Why does she suffer? She's such a good person. And you know what? God is not obligated to give me an explanation. God owes no one an explanation. God is God. He's not looking for a job. Verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arayunah the Jebusite. This threshing floor was above David's palace, north of Jerusalem, further up the mountain, further up beyond the old city of David. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Arayunah looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Arayunah went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Arayunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arayunah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these things, O king, Arayunah has given to the king. And Arayunah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Arayunah, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. Arayunah offers to donate the plot of ground to the king, the animals needed for the sacrifice, even implements that he can turn into wood to create the fire. But David refuses to offer a sacrifice that costs him nothing. I wonder how often we have given to God sacrifices that were no sacrifice at all, that cost us nothing. I wonder how often we've given to God our scraps, our leftovers, rather than reserving for God our very best, our most costly We gave to God our scraps of time and money and energy. Hey, is your gift to God being rushed? Is it cheap? Is it sloppy? Is it that which costs you nothing? What kind of a gift is that? Doesn't God deserve the best that we can muster? And so David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 15 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Now remember this plot of land, the threshing floor of Arayunah. 
It was on the mountain just north of the city of David, just outside the walls of Jerusalem on a mountain called Moriah. And it was near this same spot that Abraham had offered up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And this will become the location on which God will choose to build his temple in Jerusalem. David paid just 50 shekels for Arayunah's threshing floor. I'm sure he didn't realize that the land that he bought would one day become the planet's most expensive piece of real estate by far. This is where Solomon will construct the temple. This is where God's glory will reside for the next 500 years. This will become the focus of heaven and earth of news now in prophecy to come. Even today, Arayuna's threshing floor is Jerusalem's centerpiece. We call it the Temple Mount. One day, Jesus will rule the universe from this very spot where the angel of the Lord appeared to end the plague at the threshing floor of Arayuna.